0: Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that, but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management. Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin.
1: Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Brad Wheeler, president of Shaker Investments. Brad has had a long and distinguished career on both the sell side and buy side with some notable firms in Northeast Ohio. We talk with Brad about his experiences in both segments of the investment management business, how he transitioned from more analytical jobs to client facing positions as his career evolved. And we even talked to him about how he attempted to explain American football to clients in the United Kingdom. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy this episode with Brad Wheeler. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Shaker Investments. It's a well-known name around Cleveland. Even when I moved here a few years ago, I knew of Shaker Investments. It's just, I feel like, a Cleveland firm through and through. But maybe for those who don't know Shaker Investments as well, describe your guys' business and your role there.
2: Yeah, Shaker Investments, you're right. It's been around a long time. The business was started by Edward Helmelgarn over 30 years ago. We just had our 30th anniversary two years ago. And we are small-cap growth specialists, and that's where we have a niche in the marketplace. We have three strategies. The small-cap growth SMA is probably the product we're most well-known for. We also have what we call the fundamental growth, which is 65% small-cap stocks, 35% percent no cap constraint. Then we have a hedge fund. Again, same thing. We try to find names that are undercovered in the marketplace. We have a unique model. We have 11 characteristics that we screen to find the names that we call shaker names. When we buy them, we try to own them for a long period of time. Edward has said, if we're going to do the work on these names, we want to own them, go out and meet the management team. We do a lot of work, deep work, We love finding companies that are undercovered. And we try to find them in their growth cycle where they're starting to expand. It's been a little bit challenging lately because small cap has struggled as the big seven are the stocks that everybody's looking at. The firm's been around for 30 years. We've got a deep research team. My role in the firm, I was named president about six months ago. 75% of my time is spent out talking to clients and representing Shaker in the marketplace, presenting at conferences, and 25% is On the management side. So it's a fun place to work. We work hard, we play hard, and they're very interesting names that we look at that I think a lot of people don't
1: know about. Thanks for that background. Just knowing your background a little bit, you've been around the Cleveland area for quite some time. What was your first interaction with Shaker and what initially led to you joining the firm?
2: The two firms I've been with in the past Midwest Research was one. Shaker was a client of ours, but I never worked with Shaker. I got a call from a search firm out of New York City about an opportunity. And I met with the search firm, and it turned out to be Shaker Investments. And I've known Edward for a long time. We live four blocks away from each other. He said, Brad, I spent 50 grand on a search firm, and I could have walked four blocks away and picked you up. And I said, I didn't know it was you guys. So they did a national search, and the right fit, he said, was working with me. I knew the market. I knew stocks. It was a different career path for me. I'd always been on the sell side. But it was interesting. It allowed me to expand the stocks that I knew. I'd worked forever in more of the large cap arena, calling on firms in Boston and London. And this was a new challenge for me. So the goal was to get out and develop the brand of Shaker Investments. I mentioned we'd been around a long time, but we shut it down after the financial crisis and ran it more like a family office, I would say. And when Edward's two sons joined the business, he decided, hey, it's time to institutionalize the product. Let's get back out in the marketplace. I've been doing it for the last five years
1: you mentioned the sell side there. And I think many people have been around Cleveland for a while know that Cleveland has a really rich sell side history. So I'd, I'd love to dive into that part of your career and get some of your expertise there. Before we do that, maybe just rewind fully to your upbringing. Are you a, a Northeast Ohio native? And have you stayed around the whole time? Or maybe there's a time period you left and came back. We'd just love to hear about your early upbringing, where you grew up, east side or west side or that sort of thing, and hear that part of it.
2: I'm a native Clevelander. I grew up on the east side of Cleveland, went to Cleveland Heights High School, and state in Ohio, went to Miami Ohio after I graduated from Heights. My parents, at that time, when I was in college, my dad was an electrochemist, and he got hired by United Technologies, and he ran their fuel cell division, which was a huge growth opportunity for United Technologies. So I spent about six months in Hartford, Connecticut, after college, and realized I wanted to come back to Cleveland. All my friends were here, and I had an opportunity with a bank in town, Ameritrust Bank. Started in their training program in 1989. And that's when I came back to Cleveland, and I've been there ever since.
1: So, was it the job or the desire to move back to Cleveland that you started looking for a job? And that was just the job that came up in a bank? Or is there a bigger interest in finance investments that had led you back to that career path, which you've taken since then?
2: I had a few opportunities on the East Coast, and I came back to Cleveland because one, Ameritrust had a great training program. It was a comprehensive look at banking and how businesses work. And my dad had been a scientist, and that's the talk around the wheeler table growing up. And I knew I needed to broaden my finance background. And from Miami, I got some of that. I'd worked as an intern in Ameritrust. And I just knew that the first stage of my career, I wanted to learn more about companies, learn more about credit. And Ameritrust provided that opportunity. So really, it was the job. I loved Cleveland. I knew a lot of people here. I knew that when I got in that program, I was going to get a great full rounded background in finance. And that's what I achieved.
1: So take us through the first, say, 10 years of your career, start off on Ameritrust. Where do you progress from there to get you to what eventually was the sell side? So Ameritrust,
2: as I mentioned, was a really good training program. I worked in the asset based lending group for a guy named Joe McGraw, who was a great mentor of mine. Joe was an asset-based lender. When you do asset-based lending, you learn balance sheet analysis, you learn cash flow analysis. It's deep structural banking, in my opinion. And that was a great training ground for me. Meritrust got bought by Society Bank, and I had to make a decision whether to stay with Society Bank or to move to a a lot of the mentors and people that worked with me at Meritrust had moved to Star Bank. And I got hired by... Some of the people from Ameritrust, a guy named Andy Randall, hired me and said, Hey, I'd like you to come over here and work in our credit department for six months. And then I'll put you in a commercial lending role. And that was great because I was able to use some of the skills I developed in breaking apart companies and understanding how businesses work. The most important thing I learned, though, was listening to these clients and really doing the problem solving for them. So I was combining some of the strengths, that the things I learned at Ameritrust with my ability to sell and listen to clients in the marketplace. And it was a great opportunity. I like being the smaller guy and competing against the national cities at the time and the society banks and having to develop my own brand to convince people and leverage my skill set. But getting back to your question, how I ended up in the sell side, one of my clients at Starbank was Ralston Company. And if you remember the Ralston name, they were a financial service company in Cleveland that was a real powerhouse. They had a strong research business. I had the term debt for Ralston. I had their building financed. I had their cash management. I got to know the senior managers there. And when they decided to get out of the sell side business, I was the lender that financed that breakup. And it didn't work out perfectly at first, but I also got to meet a lot of young guys that were my age, young guys into my late 20s. And it was a unique business. And After meeting those guys, I was going back into my MBA at night. At that time, I convinced my wife to let me finish full-time. We had no children. I was at Case Westerners, got Case, get my MBA. And Midwest Research hired me as a 29-year-old intern in their research department. And halfway through the internship, my boss at the time, Evan Morgan, said, "Hey, I'd like you to come on right now as a salesperson. He said, you can cover Boston or Texas. And that's how I got on the sell side. I was an institutional salesperson for Midwest Research. I think it was the sixth salesperson. And it was great. It was a lot of young guys that were working hard, playing hard. Boston is a very competitive market. It's, you're competing against the best of the best. So you had to be prepared. And I left Case full-time program and went back at night. So I did nighttime, full-time, back to nighttime, and started with Midwest Research.
1: Thinking about your background, what you've told me up until now... Son of a was it a chemical engineer you're a credit analyst, no offense, but if I was going to profile,'d be like this guy's boring. he shouldn't be near a client. This is a nerd that we want to keep in the back, but your career navigated to a client facing role, which you've done since then. Was that intentional or is that just something someone said you had a personality, you could be in front of clients. How did that happen?
2: I owned a business in college called Shirtsing. and Miami, Ohio is very big in fraternities and sororities and clubs and every party, everything they do there, you buy a t-shirt, you buy glassware. And I developed some of these skills with my partner, Bill Passion. And we would go out and market against full-time people that were selling their products to these clubs. And I developed some of those selling skills. And I also knew that if I had got the training credit side and understanding balance sheets and cash flow, those were tools I had to learn. And once I had those, I'd always been able to comfortable communicating with people, had leadership roles and different things that I'd done. The communicating and the selling came a little more naturally, but as a salesperson, especially on the institutional side, when you're dealing with the fidelities of the world, Harvard's endowment, you really have to be prepared. An advantage that I had was I could communicate, but I could also read a balance sheet. I could also read a cash flow statement. These were tools a lot of the salespeople I'm going to criticize my peers, but a lot of the salespeople, a lot of people can read the earnings statement, read the income statement. But when you dig into a company, you have to be able to talk about cash flow. You have to be able to talk about how the balance sheet is structured. And I use some of those tools that i learned previously, and I'd always been able to sell in markets. So it came naturally to me.
1: It's really interesting. And I use the term nerd very loosely here because this is the CFA podcast. So it's put myself in that bucket. We're oftentimes not the cool kids, but it sounds like you were a pretty cool kid at Miami if you were going around selling t-shirts and whatnot at different parties. So that's a really interesting way to learn that skill. And I'm sure there's people out there that can empathize with that. Talk to us about your career on the sell side. You mentioned where it started. How did that progress? And maybe up to the point of you joining Shaker a couple of years back?
2: We were working at Midwest Research. It was a great firm. And a group of us left Midwest to form Cleveland Research. And the main reason that we changed and the way that happened was Midwest had moved to a little bit more of the investment banking focus. And we had been known in the marketplace as a research firm. And clients that I talked to said, hey, I value your independence. And that's what we did. We were an independent research firm. So when I was at Cleveland Research, we took a lot of the things that we had learned at Midwest, added some new products, I'd known the Boston market for a long time, so the transition was pretty easy. My partner and I at the time, Scott Runyon, the week we left, we had two clients give us $100,000 right away to help start the business. And that was making a bet on Cleveland Research and what we were going to do. And that was relationships that we had developed over the years while we were at Midwest Research. That really helped the firm. It gave a lot of people in the firm confidence that this was going to be successful because we did take a big risk. Fast forward a few years and we're doing very well in Boston and I saw an opportunity in London. We were not doing anything in the international side and I put together a white paper and how I thought that we could grow the international market. And when you think about the research business, the work's already done. You just have to leverage the information that you've put out there. The challenge was there's a time difference. So you had to get to the office at 4 a.m., You had to get through the compliance issues. You had to make sure that everything was in compliance earlier than it had been in the past because we were starting our business a little bit earlier. And you also had to represent the brand in yourself and gain the confidence of a lot of people that really didn't know anything about not only Cleveland research, (laughs) but where Cleveland was. And it's funny, I would say LeBron James sometimes, oh, LeBron James. And then they'd figure out where Cleveland was. But some people knew Chicago, some people knew New York. But over time, I developed those relationships. And my strategy was more, I found some of the names that I thought were important to people. I listened to them. And then I was really aggressive in making sure that I followed up on certain key names. And once I found names that were important to them, I would add and leverage different names that we were very good at. So I traveled there eight times a year. And we grew that business to a little over $2 million. What's it successful for us? I know that they've expanded that to other areas of Europe, which is great. And that led to 2017 to is when I heard, I got a call from the search firm and it was a unique challenge. It was another opportunity to grow a brand, a smaller shaker. It was at a size where it had to grow. It was using some of the skills I learned on the sell side from a branding aspect, but it also allowed me to look at different stocks and get a little bit more creative in how I present our portfolios. So it's been
1: a nice transition. I'm interested. Pre-LeBron James, how would you have described Cleveland to someone who had no idea that you're trying to gain credibility with? What would you go to there?
2: We actually had a map of the United States in some of our decks. We put some of the larger public companies that were clustered around the Midwest that they were aware of. There are a lot of expats over there, too. It wasn't like dealing with people that didn't know where it was. I would say, hey, I can see U.S. Steel from my window. And they're like, oh, okay, U.S. Steel. And I would say Parker Hannafin is down the street from where we work. They started to get a better sense for, "Okay, this is the difference between the research we're getting here in the UK versus how we can leverage Cleveland research. So it was a little visual. And then this was kind of cool. The NFL brought games over there. And I started to bring clients or prospects to those games. And not only was that helpful, but it also explaining rules, like they only soccer, soccer, explaining all the rules of football. It was incredible how they really jumped onto that and learned football. When the Browns were over there and I took people to the Browns game, and then they said, oh, Cleveland. So everybody jumped on the Browns wagon. But it was a challenge at first. Once we started to deliver good research, they didn't care where we were from.
1: It's funny you mentioned about the rules of football. I've had interaction with friends from overseas and now with young kids trying to explain the game of football to someone who has no knowledge. It's an extremely complex game. I feel like maybe if you obviously sound like you did this, if you can explain the complexities of a game like that, they're probably like, oh, you might know companies a little bit and you can explain the companies. I can see how that really translates to the sell side.
2: I'll never forget this one play. There was a field goal at the end. I think it was the Vikings and the Steelers tons of Steelers fans. Pittsburgh travels well. And they missed a field goal at the end and everybody cheered. There's a holding penalty. And I'm trying to explain to these people that have never seen football, he gets to do it again. They're like, why does he get to do it again? It was pretty funny. The complexities of football and how little some
1: people knew about it, but everyone always had a good time. Why is he holding? I see that done in every play. Yeah, it's on every play, but sometimes they call, sometimes they don't. But were the people over in the UK. Were they fans of the Steelers or the Steelers travel? Because I feel like the Rooneys with their connections to Ireland, maybe there's a rivalry there for people in the UK, but maybe I'm postulating too much there.
2: The team they like, the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars owns one of the Premier League teams too. And he probably plays, I think they might play at least three or four games there a year and maybe two. I don't know. I know that's the team that they root for, but the interesting thing when you go to Wembley, that's where the games were at that time. It's amazing. Everybody wore an NFL jersey and you would see Did buckss Jim Brown, all the old school names that I know these people did. I don't know if they knew them. And then you'd see the Tom Brady's and the Aaron Rodgers. But it was so funny. We would just look at jerseys and go, how in the world do they know who that guy is? But they were into it. They were definitely into it.
1: Before this turns into an NFL podcast, we'll get back to the sell side, which I'd love an NFL podcast, but you're in the sell side for so long. You've probably seen a lot of changes. like the sell side has continued to change how do you think about that, how you've seen the sell side change from maybe when you started in that part of the business to up until now?
2: One of the challenges is as technology's advanced, the relationship part of the business has changed some. It used to be a when I started, it was a phone business. You'd get up, and you'd have to make 100 calls a day. That's just how it worked. Then it became an email business, and then you're emailing and doing calls. And then it became an instant message business. And I think that's where, for me, the relationship side started to change a little bit. I was fortunate in that I called on the same market for a long time. So I had deep relationships, still have friends there. So I did do more of the calling. But as I think about a young person getting into that business, I just think it's gotten harder to develop relationships. And I think relationships in that business is where you can really help a client because you can get a better feel for what they're looking for. The more I talk to a person about their needs and stocks that they like and sectors they may be interested in, I can start to build that mosaic of how I'm going to help this client. And at the end of that, when I was on the sell side, the instant message part is when I started to lose a little bit of interest in continuing on that side. And I think that's the biggest change. The reg FDs and the way the regs have changed how you can present information has made it harder for the sell side to communicate their message. Now I'm on the other side. So I get calls from the salespeople and they send them to me and I go, hey, I used to be you. I know how it works concentrate on this guy. You will help. And I steer him the right way. I think it's important. I think if I can lead a guy down the right path, he can help our firm. So whenever there's a sell side firm that calls up and they're not sure where to direct them, I said, send it to me. I listen to him. We talk. I say, you're going to call him, Chris Hemelgarn. He does semiconductors for us. That's where you can help him. So I've tried to help these guys because I know it's a challenging business, but I keep telling them, you need to go to help Brad Wheeler. Call my phone. Call me at
1: the office sounds like you've traveled to quite a few places, especially in the sell side career to Boston frequently and even overseas. Was there ever any time that you thought about moving to any of those places away from Cleveland or is that never a thought even crossed your mind despite a lot of travel over the years?
2: Well, I have had opportunities to move to Boston and every time I would watch a parade for the Celtics and the Red Sox and all the teams that won over there, I would say, what am I doing? I like the way Cleveland works. I like the culture of the sell side here. There are several firms in town that do a lot of just what I call really hard equity research, deep stuff that I think a lot of firms do not do. The job for me when I was at Cleveland Research and Midwest Research is a lot different than the job at Alliance Bernstein or at Goldman Sachs. I mean, it's just... I like the digging in and actually being able to look at companies, similar to what I did at the bank before I made a call. So the answer is I had opportunities. I always felt really comfortable with a lot of the people that I worked with. And for me, I haven't had many jobs in my career. I've stuck with a lot of the firms that I've been with. So the answer is I've had opportunities, but I always felt that I was in the right
1: spot. From a personal perspective, what are some of your personal life passions that you're willing to share with the audience? I play hockey a lot. I play a couple times a week.
2: There's a group of guys I played with for a long time. I'm in my mid-50s, which is I'm supposed to quit, according to my wife, because I keep getting hurt, but I can't do it. My son's an investment banker at KeyBank, lives downtown. He's with the industrial team. My daughter graduates in two weeks from University of Georgia. So personal thing is I will have both kids off the payroll in two weeks, hopefully. My wife's an interior designer and we've talked about there's places we could move. If I don't need to be here to shake her, I could do it other places. But we like where we are and we've got a nice system set up and we've got a lot of good friends here. Other things, I try to play golf in the summer and take advantage of the winters in Cleveland after hockey. It's funny. You got to do something in the winter here. You can't just sit around. That's always been my thing and I've done it for a long time.
1: Congrats on almost having both the kids off the payroll. And it sounds like they've got a lot of success ahead of them. So that's awesome. Congrats. I think we've reached a part of the podcast, which is the, I think the most fun, like a little bit of a rapid fire question segment. If you're okay with that, some lighthearted questions for you that I think we really get to know the guests. Does that sound good? Sure. First question. Do you have a nickname? I do. My nickname is Nard. Nard. Where does that
2: come from? In 10th grade French class, high tie, you had to take a language. Or I took French. And Miss Pele gave me the name Bernard. And I said, how about Nard? She said, sure. And the funny thing is my buddy Tim Mooney was behind me. She named him Timote. And he said, how about Mote? And so I've always been Nard. He's been Mote. So that's how it transpired.
1: That's good. That's good. I was, would ask you about your hobby, but it sounds like hockey is your hobby. So I'll go off that one. Do you have all your teeth? Have you ever had teeth knocked out in hockey? Yeah, this one's knocked out
2: just the front two that one's fake
1: i couldn't tell on zoom it's a good one if you cook what's your favorite recipe to cook
2: i don't cook my wife is a terrific cook she does most of the cooking but i do all of the grilling so in our house the way it's worked since we've been married 30 years i do all of the grilling she does all of the cooking it's always worked well for us and it's what i enjoy
1: what's your favorite recipe of hers to eat
2: She makes terrific beef wellington. We don't have it often, but when she does make it, when we have my parents or friends over, that's her, I don't like to say signature dish. She has a lot of dishes, but yeah, that's what Laura makes. Her beef
1: wellington is pretty good. Profession you'd be in if you weren't in finance or investments?
2: I've coached a lot. I like working with people and seeing them get better at something. I always thought if I didn't do finance and I would be coaching somewhere, I've coached hockey from the ages of five to 22-year-olds, and I like seeing them have success. It's funny, you can see the beginning of a season, the differences between where a team has been and where they get to. I'm very into goal setting, and we do that amongst not only hockey, but in Shaker Investments and at Cleveland Research. So probably something in the coaching ranks. I also thought about this once. I would love to maybe be a general manager. I think the business side and the sports side would be a cool combination. I don't know it well enough, obviously, but I said, wow, this could be a pretty cool job. What
1: is your favorite lunch spot in Cleveland?
2: I really like Giovanni's in the summer. They've got a really nice lunch special and they have an outdoor patio. And we have a lot of clients and prospects out here in the east side that that's been my go-to and I got to know the owners pretty well because have gone there enough. So that's one. And then we are right behind the Winking Lizard and it's too easy. I've had it enough where I don't go there as much as I used to. Believe it or not.
1: <laughs> What's a hidden gem in Cleveland that you think more people should know about that maybe they don't?
2: A place that I've
1: learned that
2: I really like, that I hadn't been to as often, my wife's an interior designer and she's got some clients in Gordon Square that she recently picked up. We're East Siders and I'm not one of those guys that can't go West. I can go anywhere in Northeast Ohio. I don't really care where I'm going. But we've gone out to a lot of the restaurants down in Gordon Square over the last six months that I had not gone to. I'd heard of it. I'd been there a few times, but it seems like whenever she has a meeting over there at the times, she said, I will go with her just for dinner after. I really found that's nice. A lot of places to go there. Story is awesome. i have been there a few times, but over the last six months, I've probably been there seven or eight times, or a place that I hadn't been as much in the past.
1: Have you guys tried Il Rion yet? We're going tonight. <laughs> I am jealous. I am very jealous. It's probably one of my favorite places in Cleveland. The pizza there is amazing, and you feel like you're in Brooklyn.
2: No, it's funny. She sent me a text. Hey, don't forget, we're going to El Rio with Bradley's at 630.
1: I'm very jealous of you. What show are you watching right now? Or it could be a book you're reading right now. What's going on with that?
2: Right now, we're watching The Crown. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's pretty cool. They keep changing actors as the royal family gets older. So we're halfway through the most recent season. It's been going on forever, but it's been good. I'm reading the book on Sam Bankman-Fried, I'm trying to learn a little bit more about FTX. I'm about halfway through that. The more I read into it, I just keep shaking my head how he was able to trick investors to invest with him and I know there's a fear of missing out, but it was just a lot of big name firms keep coming up that I'm really surprised about. I'm about
1: halfway through that book. Last but not least, what's your most memorable Cleveland sports moment?
2: Most memorable would be when the Cavs won. I unfortunately grew up at Miami, Ohio during the Jordan era and I called him the devil because the Cavs had some great teams. And I remember we were driving home from my wife's graduation. She was a year younger than me. When they hit the shot over Elo and just finally to see Cleveland win that championship. It's funny. I got so many calls from friends from Chicago. They're like, we're happy for me. <laughs> that was the best positive. The worst was 97. I thought we had the best team. The Indians had the best team that year
1: and they lost. But
2: it was when the Cavs won. And we watched the final game at AJ Rocco's downtown. So it was fun.
1: You had been to a lot of the parades in Boston, so you knew how to perform in a victory parade.
2: That was bigger than the Boston. I'd been, unfortunately, several Boston parades where I had to get through people to get to. I was meeting with clients. That was amazing. We were coming back from Columbus that day of the parade, and the traffic to, from Columbus to Cleveland was incredible. And I'm like, whoa, this is going to be a big one because everyone from Columbus and Cincinnati are coming to Cleveland to celebrate this. So, yeah, that was actually... That was a great event for Cleveland. That was something that I'll never forget that one.
1: Well, Brad, thanks for joining the podcast. We appreciate you coming on and it was fun talking to you. Thanks for sharing your stories.
2: Yeah, thanks, Matt. Have a great weekend.
0: You too. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.